Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. From Buffalo, New York, to Boca Raton in Florida, to Antelope Valley in California, there's no shortage of towns named after animals. In fact, I grew up in England very close to Ely, which is a magical island with an ancient cathedral at its center. Ely is named after the eels, which played a pivotal role in the town's history. Eels, it turns out, are mysterious and fascinating creatures. Aristotle was the first to ponder where eels come from and decided that they sprang up spontaneously from the mud. Now, this sounds preposterous, but scientists are actually just beginning to understand eels. It took until 2015 to discover that both American and European eels travel thousands of miles from rivers and lakes to the Sargasso Sea in the Western Atlantic near the Bahamas, where they breed once and then die. We still don't know how they navigate at depths of more than 6,500 feet, and no one's ever yet recorded eels mating or given birth. In fact, eels largely remain a mystery. Maybe that's why I loved Ely so much. The town lies in the middle of the fens, which are peat bogs that used to stretch all the way to Holland when England was still connected to Europe 8,000 years ago. My uncle Bobby used to take me as a child to the old firehouse restaurant in Ely, and my mother Helene just had a massive exhibition in Ely Cathedral, which was founded way back in 673. I take the train from Cambridge to Ely, which takes only 15 minutes, and go in search of the mayor, Mike Rouse, who's also a local historian who has penned more than 40 books, including The Secrets of Ely. We meet up in the chambers of the city council, and I start by asking Mayor Rouse to tell us what Ely was like a few thousand years ago. The whole area around here was flooded, uh, from probably from after the Romans. For many, many years, it was marsh, swamp, with lakes and uh, rivers sort of winding their way slowly through it. And uh, there were little islands outcropping in the fence, of which Ely was one. And uh, the people lived by what they could grow on the island or the animals they had on the island, but also what they could catch in the waters around it, fish. And the area was teeming with eels. It was the Venerable Bede many, many years ago, who I think described Ely as the Isle of Eels. And they were traded. They were used uh, not just for food, but also for money. So it is said that many of the stones for Ely Cathedral, which had to be brought from, there was no local building stone on this island mm. of Ely. It's a small island. Yeah. So the main stone had to come from Barnack near Peterborough. And a lot of that was brought by river and purchased, it is said, with eels. The founder of Ely and Ely Cathedral is this figure called St. Ethel Drida. Yes, St. Ethel Drida. She founded the cathedral back in 673, which is nearly incomprehensible. Who was, who was Ethel Drida? She was a royal princess. She was uh, the daughter of Anna, king of the Angles. And he was a Christian. And he was often at war with Penda and the Mercians, who were in the Midlands. And in between the two kingdoms 
was this marshy, swampy area of Fenland with their tribes. And he used his daughter, Ethelreda, as a political alliance Mm. to uh, consolidate his uh, border. So she was married off to someone called Tonbert, who was younger than her. And as part of the wedding gift, she was given this island of Ely. Later, Tonbert died. She was actually remarried uh, again politically, but she fled that second marriage. And where could she go to was this island because she wanted to lead a monastic life, a religious life. So she came to her island, which was isolated. So she came here and she founded a, a small monastery. And that was in 673. It must have been amazing back then. It was incredible. So it must have been shrouded in mist and surrounded by murky water. It must have been uh, an amazing place. Yeah. Wild, quite dangerous, and actually unhealthy. The the natural area was defensible. There were only one or two sort of known ways onto the island. Mike, am I, am I right in remembering that the word tawdry, meaning showy, uh, but kind of like of poor quality, somehow originates from St. Ethelreda, who's also known as, I guess, St. Audrey? St. Ethelreda died of some sort of tumour on the neck or something like that. And it is said that one of the things she said is because she was vain and she wore necklaces and this was a punishment. Lots of stories like this. Ely has always been a fair town in the sense that there was a fair held here since about the 13th century. But for centuries, the the fairs came. So fairs and markets uh, managed by the cathedral and the priory were a source of income. Traders used to come in. And some of the traders used to sell cheap sort of souvenirs and trinkets and things that uh, they said were St. Audrey's. Um, And from that, St. Audrey, you get tawdry, which means a cheap sort of object, the sort of thing you might be attracted to at a fairground or from a, a market trader, so that gave the word tawdry Amazing. into the English language. Lineage, wow. So St. Ethelreda's monastery thrived for 200 years and then it was destroyed by the marauding Danes. And then under the abbot Simeon, the church was upgraded into, into a huge cathedral in, in the 1100s. A man in advanced years and tasked him with building this uh, building this cathedral on an island, as we said, where there was no local stone. Uh, I mean, yeah, incredible. incredible. Yeah. Uh, incredible. You're talking about the, the vision of people and how you'd be challenged today to set about it, wouldn't you? With all oh, the. All I mean, the, it'd never get built today. No, no, of course it wouldn't. You wouldn't get planning permission. You're creating something that is for. So all time, isn't it, for for posterity? Mm. You have to believe that it will go on after you're no longer there and that it will go on and eventually you will never see it, but it will be finished. It took 200 years for them to build it. So they began in 1080-something 
and they were going on 1280. And of course, in 13, what was it, 21, they had a catastrophe when the central Norman Tower collapsed. And, you know, surveying that wreckage, you must have thought, oh, yeah. that's it. You yeah. know, uh, we've, we've wasted 200 years and now we've got a ruin on our hand. Instead of that, Alan of Walsingham said, no, we will now create something incredible. And he then built a structure that had never been done anywhere in Europe, in the world, this octagonal lantern tower with these oak trees. They didn't have any oak trees. They brought them in for Bedfordshire, 60-foot oak trees, making the eight posts suspended above this space. Um, it's incredible. I it mean, is absolutely incredible. Yeah. You cannot but stand. You can what, look at this London Tower from a distance. It's illuminated at night. You can go and stand underneath it and look up at it in absolute awe. Mm. It took nearly 30 years to complete this structure. It's stunning. It feels like you're in nature inside. I mean, it, it gives this feeling of space and wonderment and spirituality. I've never been in a place more magnificent than that. Reading an article in The Telegraph, Mike, about... Britain's last eel catcher will bring a 3,000-year-old tradition to an end, as he says he can't find a successor to live on empty pockets. His name was Peter Carter. Yes, I know. And, um, you know, Peter, it says his own family traced eel fishing connections back to at least 1475. What happened? Why why are there no more eels? Why can't he sustain his trade? Well, our last eel catcher in Ely was a man called Sid Murray, who uh, died just a few years ago, three or four years ago. And, I mean, he faced the same thing, just shortage of eels, decline in the stocks. I mean, it spawns in the Sargasso Sea across the other side of the Atlantic. It drifts across on the Gulf Stream, enters our rivers as tiny little elvers and glass eels, develops in our rivers to maturity or is caught, and then returns eventually, those that are left, back to the Sargasso Sea. Now, this is the most incredible story. Uh, but numbers have just been declining over the last 50 years or so. And no one's quite sure why. Some think it's sort of illness. Some think it's they're not getting into our rivers. Some think it's to do with the sluices and the improved drainage and all those sort of things. And I think there is some hope that stocks are improving. Certainly eels are being bred in other parts of the country and might well be moved to our waters. But it is a mystery. So if there are no eels to catch, you're not going to make a living out no. of catching eels. When I was in college um, in London, I lived in the East End and jelly eels, you know, were... Were part of that tradition. Probably came from the Fens. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they did. Living living in the Fens in in Ely was probably tough tough back in the day. And and I hear that like in order to treat illnesses, they use laudanum, which is a toxic mixture of opium and and alcohol. And in fact, they had this rhyme, which is poppy tea and opium pill 
are the cure for many an ill. We touched on this earlier about how damp and unhealthy the area must have been. Fenman suffered from an illness which they called the ague. The ague was shivers and shakes, a fever, whatever. And it was probably a form of malaria because, you know, in a flooded area, in the summer, mosquitoes were almost unbearable. And there were no doctors. Much there, you might have a wise woman or the equivalent of a local witch to go to for a cure. You did what your grandmother had always done. So you dosed up on poppy head tea, opium, laudanum. It was grown commonly. The chemists would serve it. And it helped to numb the pain of what must have been desperately difficult for many people's ordinary lives. Mm. And this continued through into the 19th century, probably into the earlier part of the 20th century, and when it, living conditions yeah. in Ely were, were dreadful. In the, the, you only got to look at the health report. That's why Ely got a health board in 1850. There were no clean water, open drains for sewerage, people living with their animals in the lower parts of Ely in utter poverty and uh, surrounded by filth and excrement, uh, no clean water to drink. I mean, there was a serious outbreak of cholera in mm. 1832 because people were taking drinking water from the river, into which, because Ely is a hill, open drains were running down the hill, down and just pouring straight into the river. Mm. Um, so it's, it's no wonder they dosed themselves up, is it? Very often what drives people to such measures is a feeling of isolation, loneliness, um, desperation. And I imagine for many Fen people, life was extremely hard. Mm. And despite all the advances we have today, life can be very challenging for a lot of people, can't it? So Ely was an island. Um, we're going to talk a little bit maybe with rising sea levels or become an island again. But in the 1650s, um, Cornelius Vermuden drained the fens to make yeah. money for farming. A Dutchman, interesting yeah. man, Sir Cornelius, Cornelius Vermuden, as we say. Okay. Vermuden was well known for his drainage work and had been knighted by uh, the King Charles I. They'd been talking about it since, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth's time of draining the fens. A man called John Hunt put forward plans. But there were various consortia actually competing to drain the fens. It wasn't straightforward. There were various people who put forward ideas of how it should be done. The, then came the Civil War. It wasn't in Cromwell's interests militarily to have the fens drained. They were a natural barrier. It made it easier to defend this part of uh, the country. In a very short space of time, these great drains were cut. They had the advantage of Scottish prisoners of war, prisoners of the Dutch prisoners of war, and local people, and a lot of navvies, as you'd call them, working on by hand, digging out these drains. It was done very quickly, and it was reasonably successful, except that Vermeiden had miscalculated. Surely, under the water was very rich soil called peat formed out of rotting vegetation and forests. The more you exposed it to air, the more you drained it, 
the more it shrank. And of course, you'd cut rivers through it. So the rivers, after a few years, began to overflow again. So then you had to embank the rivers. Then you had to lift the water into the rivers. So that meant windmills and other ways of lifting the water from the land into the rivers, which were becoming, behind their banks, higher than the land. The more successful it drained, the more the land shrunk away. The windmills couldn't cope. And the thing that saved the fens in the 19th century, one of the most important inventions for mankind, was steam power. Mm. You could put steam pumps in and replace the windmills. And now you had the means of really draining the fens. And during the 19th century, gradually, you know, there were other drainage schemes. Uh, the river was straightened at Ely. And you could then drain the area around it using steam pumps. Gradually, you had the rise then in Ely during the 19th century of the wealthy farmer. The man who then wouldn't live out on the land, but came into or built some of the larger houses on the higher part of Ely. Mm. If you go to, say, Home Fen, which is uh, up in the north of the Fens, a wonderful part of the world, the man who drained it uh, put in a post, sank it down so the top was level with the soil, and that measures the amount of shrinkage over that period of time. And when you stand by that post, you are probably about seven feet below sea level. We have to manage water in the fence very carefully for farming because, and the obvious risk of flooding. Have there been projections on what level of sea level rise those sluices can hold back and <clears throat> what, what this area will have to do if there's three metres of sea level There's rise. a lot of concern at the moment. You see, in the fence, you have internal drainage boards, which are groups of farmers, say local councillors, who manage uh, relatively small, sometimes quite large, areas of Fenland. And they're responsible for the pumps and the drains there. And there are concerns about the banks there and the, the dredging of the rivers and all sorts of things, the flow of water... And a lot of the flood protection work is about protecting property. And the farmers say, what about protecting the land where we, we grow food? The last major Fenland flood was 1947 floods. And the Fens, it was a disaster, but the Fens, uh, you know, recovered actually amazingly quickly from that. Uh, a year or two years and they were growing food again. But if you have an influx of perhaps a mixture of, you know, in salt water coming in for the sea and things like that, it could be disastrous for food production. And we know we have to grow a lot of food and in the future have to be more self-sufficient in growing food. So the fens are incredibly important in terms of, of the national economy. But you hear a lot of talk politically about the infrastructure. People will talk about, oh, how the roads are important how the railways are important. Very rarely do they say how the rivers and drains are important. But in the fens, they're essential infrastructure. Nowadays, they're used for leisure craft. But in the old days, as we talked about, they were the main route of bringing trade backwards and forwards. Everybody 
loves to look at a stretch of water, but essentially they are there to make sure the water is in those drains and rivers and not in our back gardens and in our houses. There's been a housing boom, I mean, in in Cambridgeshire and the Fens. We've had periods of intensive building before, particularly sort of after the Second World War, around 1950, huge number of houses built, more than probably we're building now, percentage-wise. In the terms of Ely, Ely is, because of its nature as an island, is running out of space. It's almost impossible to build successfully on peat soil because it shrinks. People need somewhere to live. I have supported these policies as a, as a politician because um, I have four children. They have aspirations to live somewhere. And unless there are houses, and preferably at a price they can afford, I don't know what they're going to do. So unless you build more houses, the price of the existing houses, we know that, will just go up and up and be totally unobtainable. So this district is leading the way with things like community land trusts or ways of perhaps getting more affordable houses, more controlled by the community, but we are also dependent on what you might call the big builders, the volume builders, in coming along, identifying a site. The market is beginning to pick up in terms of building, but it has been slow for quite a long time. What we want is good quality houses that are built well, that are as sustainable as possible, that in many cases will allow people to live and adapt those houses for as long as they want in them. So they, they must be sort of flexible, you know, lifetime living and things like that. So for those of you who are discerning television watchers, there's this great comedy called The Detectorists, and it's um, by Mackenzie Crook. He actually wrote it and stars in it. Um, he was in the English version of The Office, and then he was in Pirates of the Caribbean. But this this is a it, it has a a single camera perspective, and it um, follows these two friends, um, and they really don't do anything but go metal detectoring. I think it's one of my absolute favourites of all time. tell you about that beautiful old battle-axe I once found. Yeah, you married her. Have I done that one for you before? Sorry to interrupt, but are you metal detectors? This is a metal detector. We are metal detectorists. I absolutely loved it. It was filmed in a beautiful part of the country near Framlingham, and it is about ordinary people's sort of hopes and aspirations, and quiet and moving and funny, and I thought it was absolutely sublime. Not a metal detectorist myself, but uh, some of the philosophy of it. And, of course, you're going to bring us really much closer to home, aren't you, with Ely Museum? I am. So recently, the, the detectorist find of the year, 2017, was this gold talk from the Bronze Age. A gold talk doesn't sound... Look it up on the internet, um, Gold Talk Ely Museum. Uh, it was valued at 288000 but really it's priceless. I mean, if I found this thing, I would think it's worth hundreds of millions. I mean, you see it and it's just exquisite 
gold band, um, very heavy, very large, found near here? Yes, I think it was found. I mean, the exact location obviously is secret, if yes. you like, because once you reveal such things, people might descend on it. But it was found within a few miles of Ely. Mm. The value goes partly to the finder and partly to the landowner. And Ely Museum, uh, because it was found locally, was fortunate enough to be given the chance to bid for it and with a series of grants was able to obtain it. And it is a, a stunning find. Mm. And we're very proud of it in Ely. Is it on display yet? Do you know? Yes, it's on display. You can we'll see it next look, door. Yeah, well, we're going to walk next door after this and have a look at it. One of the things I like about Ely and this part of the world is that it isn't the hectic pace of London or any of the cities around the world that when people, you know, go on their tours, they, they go to. I mean, the detectorist kind of captures what we all miss in life, which is just slows down. Life slows down to the point you can enjoy it and you can actually see the flowers and the bees and as they're detectoring, you know, you you get to see that through their eyes and they have a whole little gold dance which you'll remember. Yeah. It's a little bit like I like fishing. It's a little bit yeah, catching the fish is part of it, but really sitting on the bank of the river is the majority of the time and detectoring that's what you do, and sometimes you're lucky enough to find... Well, I think Lance was talking in the last series, yeah. Mackenzie Crook's words, about this land that history has walked upon over sort of thousands of years. And Elias like that. If you, We talk about it, 673, we, we began talking about that. Over 1,300 years ago, there were people on this island, and an abbey began. Then it grew into a cathedral. A town grew around it with a long history of fairs, markets. We're still a very strong market town, a lot of market activity. Gradually the town developed and spread out and got all the modern things and then became, through drainage and the railways, linked with the wider world outside. So Ely now is incredibly accessible. I mean, Ely train, railway station is one of the busiest in the country. You can get anywhere from Ely, and from anywhere you can get to Ely, which I hope people will do, because we pride ourselves on being one of the smallest cities, but a very friendly city, I think, and hopefully mm. very welcoming. And if anyone comes to Ely, they will be made very welcome, and not only will they have the glory of the cathedral to look at, they'll have uh, lots of nice shops to visit, and restaurants, and they'll be able to go down to the river and then out into the wider fens to explore some of the landscape we've been talking about. Actually, my son, who plays football, soccer, every time we'd come to England to visit the grandparents, he'd want to go to Ely to get his soccer shoes because King's School at Ely apparently has some good little soccer shop. So we would this, we'd make a pilgrimage here. You should make a pilgrimage here. As we discussed, people have been doing so since 673. You've been missing something if you haven't uh, made that pilgrimage too. Thank you so much for Ely Mayer and historian Mike Rouse for talking with us today. For me, Ely is a place where so much comes together. The landscape and its history bring you back to a place where life existed on a spiritual plane, where our efforts to conquer and tame nature 
were spread to the far corners of the globe, only to now be confronting the impacts of sea level rise. The idea that, like the cathedral, we would start a project that could only be completed 200 years from now is truly inspiring for me because it shows that we have the power to shape a legacy that can take centuries to realize. When you stand in Ely's Cathedral today, it's a profoundly moving experience. You can feel the passage of time condense into a single moment. And while we have phones that can make thousands of calculations in a second, we're still clueless as to how eels mate and give birth. Next week, we look at our guts to understand how microbes from the soil can help us regain personal and planetary health. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have a great week filled with mysteries from the natural world. Mm-hmm.